Hey, welcome back to, uh, this is the fifth of our sermons in David and Goliath, except I've got to tell you right at the beginning, uh, we're not going to get to David and Goliath today. We are doing it. Look, uh, our final point is so important in, in the David and Goliath narrative that I want to take the whole of this morning, not the whole of this morning, the whole of my slot, okay? Don't panic. No, the whole of my slot. Um, to do an introduction to next week's sermon, to the last sermon in David and Goliath. This is a, the whole of this sermon is an extended intro to the final sermon. It's that important on David and Goliath. Look, let me tell you a little story. So look, you've got little ones, you know, as some have here, and you want to teach them about saving so that they're wiser in adult life. Uh, and so, and so you, you may be out in the garden picking peas or whatever, green beans, and, uh, and you find this as an opportunity to teach something about savings. So you collect all these green beans, you go back home and you say to little Scarlet, look, you know, uh, if we eat all these today, we won't have any for tomorrow. And so we're going to put some in the fridge and we're going to bag some, put in the freezer. And then next week we can have some more. And the week after that we can take some out and have some more. And then you may use that to tell them about the importance of saving money. You know, that we don't spend it all at once when we get birthday money. You know, we spend some and we put some aside so we've got it to buy presents later. Now look, that would be like an illustration on saving. I want to talk to you about, not as an introduction to next week's sermon, not just merely illustrations, but something that in, the, in theology is called types or typology, the study of these types. You see, thus far we've had, look, in our application so far on David and Goliath, we've had the kingdom needs passion, people who are passionate for God's honor, the kingdom needs people willing to use their skill sets, the kingdom needs people with informed faith. And we said they were all secondary applications. They're there, but they're not the most significant things in the story. The most significant thing is number four, the one we're meant to be doing today, what we're going to do next week, is the kingdom needs a Davidic Messiah. And, and I thought, look, that's a big statement, you know, and it's not that obvious. And so we're spending this morning trying to get to the bottom of how we're going to do next week's sermon. That's what we're doing, is how we get next week's sermon. And we're saying... Jesus is, David is not just an illustration of Jesus, like the one I've just used. He is a type of Jesus. And there is a difference, and that's, all, that's what I want us to look at. David is a type of Jesus, not merely an illustration. And so our heading is this. We're on an interlude. Okay, that's what today is. And our heading is this. The typological reading of the Old Testament scriptures. The typological reading of the Old Testament scriptures. What we're doing today, I hope, will help us to read the Old Testament better, to teach junior church, and to better profit from our engagement of the text. Typology is what we're looking at. It's a significant didactic tool of the scriptures, of the New Testament particularly. It's a significant way of us understanding how the Old Testament functions. And again, I'm going to say, we're not thinking of the Old Testament and the characters and so forth as merely illustrations, 
but as types. And the difference is hard to explain, but if I can use, for example, look, my background is engineering. In engineering, if you were developing a car component, you wouldn't have just an illustration of those components. You would make, in engineering terms, prototypes. Actual real things in miniature that the purpose of which is to lead to the, that component. They're not just merely illustrations, prototypes. Prototypes have all the dynamics and details of what we're trying to get to. They point forward. They, they direct forward. They have a very purpose. The very purpose of existence is to point forward. And that's how they differ. And then, so they have waiting. Biblical typology, we suggest, and is something that happens, the Old Testament in this case, that is not merely an illustration, is not merely incidental, but actually took place under the sovereign hand of God to point forward to something in the New Testament. That's what Old Testament typology is. Its very existence was to point forward. The very dynamics of how it occurred was under the sovereignty of God. And the very reason that it happened was that he was going to point forward to something greater. That's typology, sort of. The New Testament authors show us many of these types from the Old Testament. And there are yet others that we're yet to discover. Here's a typical one that the New Testament tells us is a type. Sarah and Hagar. You'd never think it. You'd never think of it in Galatians 4. There's an extended sermon on this online if you want to listen that I've done a couple of years ago. Galatians 4.24, listen to this. These things may be taken figuratively or typologically. Types is not specifically using this point, but it's what Paul is referring to. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. And the other covenant, the new covenant, is Sarah. And Paul is telling us this, and he's saying, look, this is his point. Sarah and Hagar were real people, had real lives and real significance, but under the sovereignty of God, they existed, and their lives functioned the way they did, because their lives were prophetic. And the, the prophecy of their lives, or the arrow of their lives, were the two covenants. Hagar represents the old covenant, Sarah the new, the details in, the, in my Galatians sermon, if you want to listen to it. But that's just one illustration of how the New Testament reads the Old Testament, some parts at least, in a typological fashion. Moreover, moreover, that's a general way of reading the Old Testament. Generally, it points to New Testament truth. Jesus comes on the scene and he hijacks virtually all of the types of the Old Testament. He hijacks them. This is what he does. Listen to this. There's ready for us. Thank you. There's. This is what he says. To the, to the learned men of his time, the most learned in Israel, he says, you, you teachers of the law, Pharisees, okay, you diligently study the scriptures, you experts, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to can, can you see what Jesus is doing? He's taken the whole body of the Old Testament canon, okay, and he's saying that as a standard now, 
in the way that you ought to have engaged them to the experts in the law and to us in the way the way we should engage with them is to find Jesus in the Old Testament text. It's what his point is. It's a gigantic step. It's revolutionary. Jesus' point is that any engagement of the Old Testament text, in any form, not just typologically, no, but in any form, must lead to a better appreciation or understanding of Jesus. Can you see that? He goes, you study the scriptures, they point to me. They point to me. You have to see me in those texts. And one of the ways, because you're looking at the text, you're thinking, they can't all point to Jesus. I mean, look at half the stuff that Moses wrote. It's all detail. It's about how to build the tabernacle. How does that point to Jesus? And yet, and this is where typology comes in, is that all of the Old Testament speaks about Jesus, but not all of it speaks directly about him. Much of the Old Testament speaks about Jesus typologically. So without these two, we will never find Jesus in all of Scripture. And Jesus gives us, and in order to, to show you this is a legitimate way to read the Old Testament, Jesus gives us, shows us, typology in the Old Testament. And here's one he gives. So in John 5, he talks about type. He talks about how all the scriptures speak about him. In chapter 2, he gives a specific type in the Old, co- in the old Covenant. It's in John 2. Jesus is before the temple. The great and magnificent rebuilding. It's the third mark. It's a temple, Mark 3. Solomon built it. Uh, then the people of Israel rebuilt it. And then Herod modified it. So this is the temple, part 3. Magnificent. Herod did a good job, they say. Uh, and Jesus stands before it and he says these words, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. You know those words, don't you? I remember those from when I used to watch the Jesus of Nazareth as a child. A brilliant documentary film on Jesus' life by Robert Powell plays Jesus. And I remember this scene. I was just a teenager, just being drawn to Jesus. And, and I had a lot of confidence in Jesus. And I'm there like, yeah, he can do that. Go on, knock it down. And I'm making them on. Go knock it down. Jesus can really do it. I really believed that Jesus was going to rebuild this temple in three days, like he said. And you know, I was won over by Jesus. And, and the Pharisees, if you think I'm a dummy for believing that, the Pharisees believe the same. They did look verse 20. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? Yeah, see, I'm not the only dummy out there. They too thought he was talking about the temple. What else would he be talking about? And here's where Jesus introduces them to typology. Okay, verse 21. But the temple he had spoken about was his body. That's a big, big, that's a big change in how someone read the old covenant Jesus in talking about the temple was saying this is what he's saying he's saying the temple I'll ask you what was the chief significance of the temple it was the place where God's presence dwelt forget everything else the only real significance of the temple the only significance that matters is it's the place where God dwells. And can you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, God established and had you build the temple because it was a prototype or an arrow that pointed to the 
ultimate place where God's presence dwells. And so when Jesus says, destroy this temple, he was saying, destroy the temple that this little structure points to. I am that temple. Colossians tells us, Paul writes and says, look, in Christ we have what the temple signified. All the fullness of the deity. It's what the temple was. The fullness of God would come into it. In sorts. In Jesus we have the fullest, the clearest, the greatest temple of God. And so Jesus is saying that temple was always only ever, not an illustration, but a prototype of him. And the disciples, they didn't get it obviously either, but in verse 22 they write, and after Jesus was raised from the dead, after he spent more time teaching them, okay, his disciples recalled what he said, and then they believed the scriptures, then they understood typology. And the words that Jesus has spoken about, to them about the temple, after the resurrection, they understood that the way you find Jesus in all of the scriptures, because they heard him say that in John 5, and were scratching their heads, all of the Old Testament scriptures speak about him, I think Jesus is having, you know, an off day here. Then they understood, that's how he does it. Those structures are actually set there because they appoint to Jesus. And then you can see, can't you? You really could find Jesus in every page of scripture. These are the, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And they testify frequently about Jesus. Typologically. So Jesus gives an illustration of typology and he actually tells the disciples specifically to use typology to understand that the Bible speaks about him. It's in Luke 24. It's after his resurrection. He's on the Emmaus Road. Look, and he says these words uh, to the two on the Emmaus Road and to the others afterwards. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself in Luke 40, 24, 44. Uh, this, is what, this is what I told you while, while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. There is no way you can get Jesus from the law of Moses. I mean, have you, have, you read, have you read the law recently, the first five books of the Bible? Most of it, most of it is detail after detail about how to build the tabernacle and how to set up a sacrificial system and all this other stuff. And can you see what Jesus is saying? He can only be saying to the disciples, you have to read that entire Pentateuch as a type pointing to me. And we're going to see some of that later. And so John 5 Luke 24, and numerous Pauline texts, Paul's text in the New Testament, much of the New Testament graphically illustrates for us how to read the Old Testament scriptures typologically. It's a tool of the Bible, and it's then that we understand what Jesus said. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And so here's a question we should be asking. Whenever we engage with the Old Testament, and I hope we do, we're preaching it. Here, I hope we read it at home. Perhaps some of us are doing the Bible Marathon. Here's a question we must must ask. When we read or engage with the Old Testament, are we engaging with it according to Jesus' methodology? 
Are we engaging with it properly? The simple, the simple answer to that is, is if you read the Old Testament tomorrow morning and you don't leave with a picture of Jesus, okay, unless you've read only one half of a verse, maybe you won't get Jesus just in half of a verse, but if you read a chapter of the Old Testament, you know, in almost any chapter, and you don't leave with something of Jesus, then we've misread the Old Testament. We've missed what it's about. And Jesus will say to us, as he said to the Pharisees, you just read that chapter of the Bible and you haven't understood that it's about me. You see, that's the question we must, must ask when we turn to it from the New Testament. Are we, here's the thing, are we turning to the Old Testament because we love Jesus and we want to find more of Jesus? Are we turning to the Old Testament when we teach our kids, whether in the bedroom, whether at school, or whether at junior church, because we want to teach them about Jesus. And often when we turn to the Old Covenant with our kids, we turn to David, don't we? We turn to Elijah. We turn to Moses. And the question we are asking is, when we do that, are we doing that because we want to teach our kids about Jesus? Because I'll tell you this, and I've said it to, I'll say to our Sunday school teachers, Moses can't save your kids. Seriously. If you teach your kids about Moses and the fact that he gave the commandments, if you've done nothing, nothing, to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ and salvation. Seriously. Why on us if we do that? The reason you teach your child about Moses is because Moses points to Jesus. And so when we read the Old Covenant... We must ask ourselves, are we seeing Jesus? Are we going there to unearth Jesus? Are we going there because to learn more about Jesus? Are we going there because it's, it, it's everywhere pointing to Jesus Christ? Look, I don't want to undermine the significance of the Old Testament as a standalone text. It teaches us many, many things. We've done four well, we've done three application points already from it that are not Jesus-centric, haven't we? So we're not suggesting that the Old Testament doesn't teach us history, doesn't give us a background, doesn't show us how the planet began, doesn't, doesn't give us an understanding of the Jewish race. It does all those things, and they're all worthy disciplines of exploration. I've done in the last three weeks. But what we are saying is, they're always secondary things. The history of Israel is a secondary reality to the primary thing is that the history of Israel points to Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ. And so, as a new covenant group of people, we live in a new covenant generation. When we want to know how to live the Christian life, when we're looking for didactic truths, truths that teach us something, how do I know what God wants for my life? I have to, says Jesus, as a first recourse, ask what he or his apostles teach us. We do not turn to the Old Testament as our first point of reference for how to live the Christian life. We turn to it to point us to Jesus. And to learn how to live the Christian life, here's what Jesus says, and it's really, really important that this principle is grounded in how we read the Bible. Jesus says, if you want to know how to live the Christian life, how to please him, this is how you do it, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine 
and puts them into practice is like a wise man and built his house on a rock. Can you see what Jesus is saying? He's telling us that the body of teaching that he has brought to the planet, the body of teaching that he is going to, is going to empower his disciples to develop and build, that that's what makes you right with God. That's what makes you the wise man who built his house on a rock. Not Moses, not Abraham, not even Jeremiah, that your first body of text that tells you how you're to be a wise man who builds his life on Jesus is the very words that Jesus spoke himself and the very words that his apostles later taught. It's why he finishes in Matthew 28. Remember, this is his last ever words alive before the resurrection. This is the most important thing Jesus is ever going to say. And what does he say? This is what, he doesn't tell them about Moses. He doesn't care about Moses at this juncture. Instead he tells them, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, go and convert the world, you disciples of mine, teaching them to obey everything I've just taught you. That's what we teach the church. That's where you get your learning from. That's how you know how to live, what to do, where to go, how to conduct yourself. It's not Moses. It's Jesus. And so the Christian turns to Jesus and the apostles as our primary source of how we live the Christian life. There are lots of secondary teachings in the Old Covenant, but that's not their primary purpose. The primary reason we go to the Old Covenant is to find Jesus. To find how we live the Christian life, we turn to Jesus and the apostles. To find more of Jesus, we turn to the Old Covenant that tells us and enlightens us and points us, usually typologically, to Jesus. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Read the Old Covenant regularly. Find Jesus. Read the New Testament. Find direction for how to please Jesus. That's the... That's, that we've, that's a general rule. Read the Old Covenant to find Jesus. Read the New Covenant to please Jesus. And that's the principle that works all the way through the Bible. And when you're reading the Old Testament, we must, we must, we must bear in mind typology. Those types, those figures, those prototypes, those realities that God orchestrated and guided so that they pointed forward to specific details of Jesus' life. Now, in the remaining time, this is what I want to do with you. I want to ask, okay, when we're dealing with types, are there different types of types? Uh, are there different genres of types? And there are, look, there's at least five that I could come up with, okay? When you're looking for types, here's what you're looking for. Sometimes they are persons, Okay? David is a type, that's next week's sermon, I'm spending all this week just to preach next week's sermon, okay? Okay, David is a type. Catherine's doing Joseph. Joseph is a type, okay? I'll tell you a little bit about Joseph in a minute. So, look for persons that are types. There's many of them. The next one, please. Events are types. The Passover as an event is a type of Jesus and everything he does within that. So it affects the institutions, such as the sacrificial system, is a type. That's a clear one. We can obviously understand that one, can't we? Whenever you read about the sacrificial system, you're meant to be thinking of Jesus and the cross. 
So look for institutions, look for objects. Uh, such as, just go back one please, Charlie. Uh, such as the one Jesus uh, just used in John 2. He told us that the temple as an object is a type. And the last one is creatures are types of lambs. Even the goats and the bulls are the type of Jesus. And so is the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And so when you're looking for these types in the Old Testament, you, I mean, there may be others, but that's the five that came to me. You're looking for persons, you're looking for events, you're looking for institutions, you're looking for objects, you're looking for creatures that point to Jesus. And we also note in, in looking for types in the Old Testament, okay, we're not just looking for similarities always. So we're not always saying those things have to be similar. Sometimes types come to us as antitypes or contrasts. So sometimes, I mean, we did it when we looked at Haman, I think, I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure. We said, Haman was a type of Christ. And you're thinking, no way! As an antitype. Haman is everything that Christ isn't. So in, in Esther, you have... You have two types there. You have Mordecai, who's a type of Christ. Not Esther. Mordecai is, is the Christ in, uh, in the book of Esther. So you have Mordecai as the type of Christ. And then you have Haman as the antitype of Christ. And Mordecai is what Christ looks like. And he saves his people. Okay? Haman is what Christ, everything that Christ reverses looks like in polar opposition. So the other thing about types is they're not always similarities. that can be dissimilar polarize truths. I know it's complex, but that's how it works. Okay, so there are different genres of uh, typology. The next thing, and the last thing I want to look at with you, before I just give you two or three small types, is what are the hazards of typology? Because if you're not careful, you can turn everything in the Old Testament into something weird and wonderful. And people do. And so I want to look at with you some, some, of, the, some, of, the, some of the hazards because not everything is a type. And not everything that someone says is a type, even a theologian, even a pastor, okay, that when he says he's a type, he's not necessarily a type. There's a fundamental rule about types is that we're not looking for every single detail in something. Okay, we're often just looking at the main theme of the, so in the temple, we're not looking at every detail of the temple when Jesus says that I'm the temple. He meant the main theme of the temple, which is the fact is the presence of God. So here's a typical, uh, typical one that I want to suggest is not a type. And if you think it is, please forgive me. Don't shoot the preacher. But this is, this is a typical overstepping of the mark when you're looking at typology. Joshua 2. Um, this, there, so it's when they're going to invade the land, Rahab helps them, helps the spies, and I say to her, if you remember these words, this oath that we've made, uh, as we swear, is only binding, the oath to save her and her family, is only binding, is if when we enter the land, we see that you've tied this scarlet red cord in the window. And so, what do you think people say that's a type of? Yes, mate. It's, 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 so Rahab was saved by the death of Jesus because look she hung that rope outside her house and it was scarlet and we know the scarlet is the colour of blood and so that must be pointing to the blood of Jesus that's the cross and can you see that's the danger in typology you can start unearthing all kinds of weird and wonderful 
you know, uh, typologies that aren't really aren't in Scripture. Now look, that falls apart, and here's why it falls apart. Remember, when we're looking at types, we're asking, what does this whole general episode or this general event point to as, as, as the overarching theme of it? And so when you look at, at the, skull, the color of that rope, and you look at her, you're not thinking of that episode as the most important thing in this story is the color red. Now, the most important thing in that story is her, is, is her and her family being saved from destruction. And so, the only commonality between, between the cross and Rahab's illustration is the color red. And if you're finding types, and the only connections you have are these minute little insignificant realities, then it's almost certainly not a type. Look, a typical example is, we know that the tabernacle is a type of, of, of Jesus. It's a place where God's presence dwells. But it doesn't mean that every detail of the tabernacle, all those minute details of how it's constructed, it doesn't mean that every one of those details points to Jesus. It means the most significant aspect of the tabernacle, the fact is where God's presence dwells between the two cherubims. It's the fact that it's, it's the place of forgiveness. They're the key uh, prototypical uh, elements of it. Here's what um, a commentator, theologian says. The New Testament offers, new authors rather, tending to make parallels with major truths rather than discussing minute details. For example, although the tabernacle as a whole is seen as a type of Christ, it could not be correct, it would not be correct to seek to deep, to seek deep spiritual meaning in all the detailed instructions for its construction. So be careful when you read about types that those who are putting them out are really following the general theme of what a type is. The safest way to know you're dealing with an Old Testament type is New Testament authors. They give, whenever a New Testament author says that's a type, Hebrews does it in chapter 9, chapter 10, all about the tabernacle, you know that is a type. When he does it about the sacrificial system, you can always be certain that a New Testament author is inspired by Jesus to tell us the types. When anybody else finds a new type in Scripture, you always, I do, treat it with some caution. That's typology. That's typology. Next week, here's what we've seen, that the Old Testament is pregnant with types about Jesus. That's how it speaks all about Jesus. Jesus himself points us to their use of them from the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament authors give us lots of them. There are various genres of types and we have to be aware of the hazards when we look at types. Next week we're going to look at David. And what today does, I hope, is explain why next week's sermon is a valid sermon why it really does point to Jesus and why taking this as a pattern you in Sunday school teaching in teaching your kids in understanding the Bible in understanding your reading can pick up some of those types I've got a lovely Bible at home um, that, that deals with hundreds of these types um, as, as you go through them I can always refer you to a copy of that I want to give you very three very brief types just as application because this has been more of a lecture than a sermon I appreciate that is a sermon in, in five minutes, okay? Something for you to take away. I'm going to look at three types with you. Number one, Adam. 
as the, like Haman, as the antitype, as a contrasting type, which is, and this, this, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, contrast on types, he's lost his mind. Paul says Adam is a type of Jesus, in anti, in, in contrast, polarized. So Adam, as the antitype of Jesus, Jesus is everything that Adam is not. It's, it's what his temptations in the desert was about. He was showing Adam what happened in his temptation. Jesus was showing that in his temptation, he conquered. And so Jesus is everything that Adam is not. That's how you read Adam. That's when you look at Adam, you're looking at everything. everything. Uh, Jesus is everything that Adam is not. And here's what Paul says about him. But if many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? That's the connection. One man is the head of the physical race of humanity. One man, Jesus Christ, is the federal head of humanity. And what Paul says about Jesus is here is the forgiveness of sin that Jesus brings. Again, the gift of God is no longer the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed sin and brought condemnation, but the gift of righteousness uh, uh, from the followers of those who trespass brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned in all, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man. Verse 19, For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. See the contrast? Adam is nothing like Jesus and therefore he is a type of Jesus in, in antitypes. In contrast, and here's what I want to say about that to you, friends. Here's what I want to say that to you. Hey, I don't know what kind of week you've had, but if we're honest, we've all been terrible, terrible sinners. Seriously. We come this morning and we're weighed down by the reality is that we're terrible people. We don't belong here. If anybody knew the things that we've been thinking, saying, doing, or the places we've been going, that thing we're the worst Christian that ever met. And they'd probably be right, wouldn't they? And so that we come here, and if we're honest, hey, we've had a terrible week in our fight against sin. I don't belong here. What am I doing here? I don't, my life looks nothing like Jesus's half the time. Here's what Adam and the antithesis Jesus tells us, the antitype rather. He said, hey, you are made right because it's God's gift to you. You belong here because God has imputed to you a right standing. And just like you cannot escape Adam's unrighteousness so long as you live because it gets passed on to you, biologically or spiritually rather, you can't shake off the fact that you stand before Jesus or sit before Jesus right this moment perfectly, wholly, totally righteous. Hey, you belong here. You belong here. Whatever you've done, however bad you've been, Jesus looks at you. God rather looks at you and sees not Adam, but the antitype. He sees Jesus. Hey, be encouraged. Number two, let me just tell you briefly about the rock. You know the rock that Moses struck and water came out of it? Paul says, that's Jesus. Another antitype, an object now. Numbers 20, 
they went to the rock and the Lord said to Moses speak to the rock although Moses hit it and got banned from the promised land okay and, uh, and you will bring water out of the rock to save their lives they needed this water to, to live and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that rock is Jesus that's a type and Jesus is that rock he says look and they drank from the same spiritual rock and that rock is Christ and here's the thing I want to say to you friends here's the truth when we read that passage of the Bible we see Jesus is rock and we're meant to think this is where it's meant to point Jesus is he who gives me everything I need to sustain my life for my ongoing life for my contented life Remember what he said to the woman at the well? It harkens to the fact that he's the rock that gives water. Remember what he said to her? Look, look, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Hey, let me say this to you. Jesus is the one who truly quenches our thirst for life, contentment, happiness, joy turn to him and the last one very very briefly we, we referred to earlier the line of the tribe of Judah Judah and his tribe were a type are a type Jesus is that lion look it's in Genesis 49 Judah you are a lion or a lion's cub and Revelation tells us see about Jesus he is the lion of the tribe of Judah he has triumphed and so the message is, so whenever we read about and you're reading through the old testament it's boring isn't it all these blessings you know Moses, you know judah is this and i can't think of the other brothers and reuben is this and and whoever god is this you know you think well, what's the point of that it points to jesus when you get to judah you found an arrow you found a type and you're buzzing in your feet because you think oh he's a lion Jesus is the lion. And then you think, what aspect? What is it about the lion? It's about the, it's about the fact that the lion is a king of the beasts. Nobody can touch him. He's untouchable. He defeats all who come his way. He's ferocious. He's all-powerful. And so when you think of Jesus as, 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 as the lion, I think we think about him as a lamb too often. It makes him too much too, too docile, doesn't it? Hey, guys, especially chaps, think of him as a lion. He's mighty. He's powerful. And if you've got Jesus walking with you, no one is going to lay a finger on you, mate. He's got your back covered. He's got your front covered. He's got your life in his hand. And so long as a lion, so long as you're walking with a lion, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It's what Jesus said. It's what Hebrews says, rather. We can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Hey, a lion walks with you. you imagine the situation. You're walking down some jungle and you're worried about the ferocious, ferocious creatures. And you've got a lion as your best mate. It's, it's, in, it's in the Lion King, isn't it? When Tim, what the words? The wart, Hogwart and the, and the other creature. And when they, get, when they get Simba on board, they're like, we're going to lion. And that's how it is, Christian. That's what Judah tells you. You're walking through the jungle with a lion as your companion. So do not fear. 
I'm going to leave one last text with you, Luke 8, 50. I wonder if this is a word for somebody here. Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Hey, Christian. Don't be afraid. Just believe. You've got a lion walking with you. Now, there's lots more. The Bible is full of them. When you read the Old Testament text, these are the scriptures that testify about me, says Jesus. Amen.